Jesus was telling a parable when he was speaking to his disciples in the crowds one day, and it starts like this, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them and made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And you know the rest of the story, I'm pretty sure. The first two were rewarded with praise and more responsibility. The third was chastised and punished. And I would suggest to you that the first two servants loved and trusted their master. And because they did, they wanted to please him and did what he wanted them to do. And so they were rewarded and praised. The third servant, however, I don't think trusted his master and therefore did not love him. And that made him a useless servant to his, to his own loss. There is a hymn uh, called titled Give Your Best to the Master, which has only two, two, which only two of the three servants could actually probably have sung. And some of the words of the hymn are this. Give of your best to the master. Give him first place in your heart. Give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. Give and to you will be given. God his beloved son gave gratefully seeking to serve him. Give him the best that you have. Let us pray. Father God, our Lord Jesus came not as a king, but as a servant sent by you to do your will and to invite us to a grand banquet in your kingdom. Grant unto us the vision to see and to do your will, that we may truly be your faithful servants, doing your will in service to others. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've been asked to introduce our speaker today. Uh, he came to, uh, he's not sure what I'm going to say. <laughs> he came to St. Andrews in 2000, September of 2000, with his wife Jackie and four sons. Uh, the boys have grown up quite a bit since then, and now he's a grandfather of two children, two grandchildren. Um, he's, when he came, he was known here at St. Andrews, and I think still is, uh, and in the community as Steve Wood, the rector of St. Andrews. Now, the word rector is not a common name in all of the denominations around, and some of you are not from, from St. Andrews, so it may not be a familiar word. Basically, the word rector is, is what we use for the senior pastor, the term we use for the senior pastor. Now, for folks like me who have worked for him in the past, and folks that work for him now, Rector means boss. <laughs> uh, in 2012, he was elected bishop of the Diocese of the Carolinas in the Anglican Church of North America. Uh, being elected bishop has not changed the man. It's given him more responsibilities and a heavier workload and another title. But there's something, there's many things that Steve brought with us, to us when he came, and they still abide in him, and they have grown, and we have grown with him. And the thing that I would like to share most that he brought with him is a love for God, a love for our Lord Jesus, a love for the Holy Spirit, and a love for the Word of God. And he has a saying that from time to time he shares with us, I'll say it the way he said it, but I want to add something to the front of it. Uh, the word eventually could fit in the first two statements uh, in what he says. He learned this from a friend, I think, in seminary. Uh, and the statement is, if you have only the word, you dry up. If you have only the spirit, you blow up. But if you have the word in the spirit, you grow up. Would you greet our, our speaker today, Bishop Steve Wood? Morning. Thanks, Ken, for that kind introduction. Ken, um, 
I learn a lot of principles of leadership from the Godfather trilogy, the movies. Uh, Ken is my consigliere. Uh, he's the guy I go to when I just want to bounce ideas off of, uh, get some perspective and wisdom. Um, I appreciated Ken over the years. We are, this morning, going to look at this idea of master-servant, right, dealing in John, John 13. Uh, it's great joy for me to be here today. Uh, I arrived at St. Andrews almost concurrent with, with the launch of Drawing Near to God, uh, but at that time it was essentially a small group, uh, originally I think, that met in a home and then outgrew the home and came into Sam's Hall, and then outgrew Sam's Hall and came into here. Joanne Ellison models very much what I hope for all of our people, is that people uh, in the context of a faith community, and particularly here at St. Andrews, and she's a member here, and I'm I'm the rector here, um, will discover their gifts, will employ those gifts, and then will be used to impart and to raise up other people in the exercise of their gifts. So I'm um, delighted to be able to be with you this morning. I'm going to suggest, premise, right, that, that we often approach servanthood, we often approach much of life between have to and get to. Um, and one of the things that Ken had commented on is, is as I've become bishop, um, very little of my life is get to anymore, mostly have to, um, and it, it can be tiring, but it's dangerous to bring that equation into our relationship with Jesus Christ, and the church in America is very good at that. It's very good at laying and presenting have-tos to people, the law, and we want to find the gospel, we want to find grace. Touch on that because behind the issue of master-servant, behind the idea of servanthood is really something more profound because we can serve out of obedience, we can serve out of fear, we can serve out of uh, consequences if we don't. Uh, but the kind of servanthood that God is looking for is actually modeled in Christ himself. We'll look at it this morning in, in John 13. But it's a servanthood that's um, modeled on love. Right? Um, there's a lot of confusion about love. You look at pop culture. Uh, my boys were stunned that I even knew any of these people. Uh, if you look at pop culture, Tina Turner called love a secondhand emotion. My world is country music and bluegrass. My preferred world, Tom T. Hall, an old country singer from many generations ago, uh, said, I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, slow-moving trains, and rain. Um, he finally got around in the song to saying, and, oh, by the way, I love you too. Um, I, I actually took a sign language class at college uh, I, I had to sign. We got to pick a song. I signed this song. Everyone else is signing you too, and um, I'm signing Tom T. Hall. And it was a great moment because one of the lines is, and I love grass. And my teacher said, grass or grass? <laughs> I said, heaven's grass. <laughs> Chris Kattan, Will Ferrell danced at the Roxbury, and Hathaway wondered, what is love? Fergie asked, where is the love? Beyonce saying, baby, it's you. You're the one I love. You're the one I need. You're the only one I see. Oh, baby. <laughs> Jesus, in the text we'll hear in a moment, said, he knew his hour had come and had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. For a word that is used so regularly, it is amazing how poorly defined the meaning of love is. And this morning I want to do three things as we consider master-servant, but particularly the love behind the master-servant and the effect of that love. As we look at our gospel in a moment, I want you to see the meaning of love. I want you to understand that love reveals hidden beauty, and I want you to know the promise of love. Right? The meaning of love? Love reveals a hidden beauty and the promise of love. This is our framework. Let's pray as we come to the text. Father, give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the understanding that true wisdom consists in two parts, knowing you and knowing ourselves truly. It's only in your word that we know you, and it's only in your word that we know ourselves truly. So we pray for the gift of your spirit today that um, he might enlighten our hearts, that Christ might be revealed. We might know the depth of his love for us and for this world. Father, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin, just 
getting your own mind engaged, what do you mean when you use the word love? Right? We use it all the time. I love dark chocolate. I love single malt scotch. I love bourbon. I love my wife. I love my dog, Folly. I love my kids. I'm using the same word, but I'm using it in a variety of different contexts. What do you mean when you use the word love? And typically what we mean when we speak of love is that we're almost always speaking of the emotional aspect of love, the feeling aspect of love. But what we're going to see in our text is that Jesus does something very different. What does he do? Well, he will define love by an action. And what we see in John 13 is Jesus' actions demonstrating his love. I always enjoy when folks follow along. We are in John 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the chair in front of you. It's on page 900 in the chair Bibles. And this is what the Apostle John writes. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master." nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, there's a line in here that is, for me, arresting, right? Um, and one translation says it like this, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The ESV says he loved them to the end. He showed them the full extent of his love. How did he do this? Well, there's a movement taking place in the Gospel of John. There's a phrase that occurs in here, his hour had come. It occurs, his hour had not come. All the way through John up to this point, you see Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. It first appears way back in the first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Interestingly, it's the jars of preparation, the water, that Jesus turned into wine. And what he was saying at that point was, Mom, because remember, she wanted him to do this, this is not my wedding, and this is not my bride. And John was pointing to the future and uses this phrase continually, this rhetoric device, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, but now the hour has come. And what's happening here is this is the purification preparation of his bride. This is now his bride. He recognizes, and now he is beginning the process of purification, the ritual purification before the wedding. And in our text today, he loved them by serving them. By washing their feet, the ritual purification that a bride would experience before her wedding day. Now, in a few more chapters, we will see again his hour had come. And this time, instead of wine being poured out of preparation jars, it is wine, blood being poured from his side for all those who would believe in him. So Jesus defines love. Scripture typically defines love not so much as an emotion that we feel, although it is that. Right? If I told my wife, I love you with all my head, she might wonder about my heart. Love is an emotion, but it is so much more than that. 
And for Jesus, it is primarily an action. It is primarily an action expressed toward another person. So the Apostle Paul, dwelling on this, will write to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were unlovely, while we were unworthy, Christ died for us. And one of the ways you begin to see the uniqueness of Christ's kind of love, right, this love expressed by action, is when you look at how this love treats the undeserving person. When you look at how this love deals with the person who has disappointed them. The story of the human race is that we are a fallen people. And the consequence of our fallenness is that we choose paths that seem right to us. And Scripture will tell us there is a path that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Our fall from grace, the path we have chosen as we have self-determined the course of our life, brings to God a crisis of love. How and why? Well, here's how. If our rejection of God caused Him to withdraw from us His affection... If our rejection of God caused him to withdraw from us his love, or if we were to be treated by God as we deserve to be treated, if all God has for us is a conditional quid pro quo kind of love, right, I will love you if, fill in the blank, then we would be without hope. But Jesus defines love quite differently. He defines love as an action. But more than that, he defines love as an action toward an unworthy person, toward an undeserving person, toward an undeserving people, an action on behalf of sin-stained people. And the meaning of this love? The meaning is that the fall, the stain, the sin does not have the defining word in your life, nor does it have the last word in your life. And that's important to know because I consistently engage people who believe the word of sin over their life rather than the word of grace. And so the great hymn sings of this love, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they may lovely be. So love makes a way. While we were sinners, this is our story. While we were sinners, while we were unlovely, Christ gave meaning to love by demonstrating love. He acted on our behalf. He took the sin upon himself. He took the disfigurement of sin upon himself that we might become lovely. So how do you define love? What gap exists between your definition of love and Christ's definition of love? And before you think you need to be heroic and who you might give your life up for, let's start smaller. It's a Thursday morning. You're coming to St. Andrew's for drawing near to God. It's raining. You turn down venting. And there right in front where there never is, is an empty parking space. You would think, it's just for me. It's a miracle. It just opened up. God had it in mind for me. God reserved it for me. But then, as you're driving toward it, someone zips in and takes it. Now, how likely is it you will say in your heart to this other driver, go ahead, take my space. I want you to have it. It's my gift to you. I will walk many miles in the rain just to get to drawing near to God. Before you even consider dying for someone, how many people would you give up your parking space for? How many people will you let improperly merge in front of you on Johnny Dodds? 
How many people would you be inconvenienced for? How many people would you give up a bit of your income for? How many people would you give up your possessions for? But now let's add another shade to this. Let's add another nuance. How likely would you be to sacrifice anything for someone you believe to be completely undeserving? I was in a conversation Tuesday with someone here at this church, and they were asking me about the manner in which we expend our mercy money because they only want to give mercy money, right? Money to meet the needs of, we have a mercy account that meets the needs of non-St. Andrews people in the community. And they wanted to be sure we were only giving money to deserving people. How likely would you be to take the hit for someone, knowing full well that when you do it, when they have benefited from your sacrificial action, they will never even give your sacrifice a second thought? How likely would you be to do that for an ungrateful, unlovely, ungodly person? And this is the point of our text. Because somewhere in the church, we've developed the idea that you've got to get your life together before you come to Jesus. And so we come in looking good, smelling good, acting good, while inside is pain and corruption and brokenness, dark things hidden away, by the pretty exterior? Having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were unrighteous, while we were undeserving, while we were ungrateful, Christ died for us. See, knowing this about us, knowing all of this about us, God still died for us in Christ. And so Jesus defines for us what a servant looks like, and a servant looks like one who loves. Jesus defined love by his action. He defined love by a giving to those who may never give anything back. This is why Paul will say on the last day, we will be without excuse when we stand before that great throne. For grace has been given and love has been given to all. And this is the heart of it. This is the example of love in John 13. That a love that loves, not because loving is a good way to get your needs met. Right? You love because the person, the one you love, is worth love. Simply by the mere fact of being created in the image of God. Jesus demonstrates to us a love that's not calculating. A love that's not shrewd. He does not demonstrate a love that says, I will love you as long as and to the degree that you love me. He does not say, I will serve you as long as and to the degree that you serve me. As long as you make me feel good, as long as you satisfy me, as long as you are well behaved, then I will keep loving you. Jesus doesn't say this. But instead, he shows us another kind of love. He shows us what true love is. A little bit later, he'll say, you have heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. Is our country wrestling with this on a global level? But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, I am not saying that should be governmental policy. I am saying it should be your practice. Love in our text is defined by a towel. In a few more chapters, love will be defined by a cross. Love extended to people who do not deserve to be loved. I came to the Christian faith, not late, I was in my 20s, so I was still young. But I dated Jesus probably for seven years. Right? Let me tell you what closed the loop for me. It was Jesus on the cross. And particularly... And, and, and knowing of the crucifixion, knowing, knowing the agony. I mean, because not just the agony of the crucifixion, but the way you're affixed through wrists and feet. Uh, and the method of execution of crucifixion is not bleeding to death, it's suffocation. Right? You, can't, you can't breathe. 
And in order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up on the spikes in your hands and push up on the spikes in your feet just to take a breath. And Jesus hanging on the cross seven times spoke. And this is what got me. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And I wondered what kind of man says this kind of thing. What kind of love is behind that kind of statement? See, it's a love that is given to those who cannot. It's a love that's given to many who will not love him back. Give anything back to him. Right? This is the meaning of love. This is the love that underlies our servanthood. Next, I want to suggest that love reveals a hidden beauty. The problem we face when it comes to love, I make it more personal, the problem I face when it comes to love is not that I do not know how to do loving things. I know how to do loving things. It's not difficult to figure out how to do loving things. The great problem I face is that it requires energy. It requires an expenditure of energy on my part. It requires a sacrifice on my part. And to be honest with you, at the end of the day, I'm often simply too tired, or maybe, more honestly, I'm just too lazy to spend any more energy on an act of love because I have devoted my energy to other things. More than anything else, being a father has revealed my fundamental self-centeredness and my selfishness. Jackie and I just had our 31st wedding anniversary about a month ago. Someone said, that's a long time. How have you guys made it? I said, we both fell in love with the same man. Me. <laughs> Being a father has revealed to me what I've known, but makes clear that I love me and that I am selfish, and that I am self-centered. How does it do this? Because love, as at times being a father, boils down to the expenditure of energy on behalf of another. Will I give my boys a bath? Will I make their meals? Will I read The Hungry Caterpillar for the millionth time in the same day? Will I change their peed sheets in the middle of the night? Will I calm their fears? Right? We, we were living here. Our boys were old, older, old enough to know not to do this. But we had a storm, a bad storm. It woke me up, but I didn't hear the boys moving. But the next morning, Jack and I woke up, and four boys from 18 down to a 11 we're sleeping on our bedroom floor. <laughs> Will I calm their fears? Will I rub their back? Will I sing, th sing to them? Will I wash their clothes? Will I help them with their homework? When Sammy graduated from high school last year, I was most pleased because I had completed Algebra 1 for the sixth time. <laughs> when they get older, it's difficult. Because a kiss on a boo-boo doesn't fix their problems. Will I mend a broken heart? Will I pray with them? Will I teach them how to read the Bible and not just read it, but to understand it? I've developed a little practice with my boys. We've been doing it for years as three are moved on, one still at home. I wanted to find a way that we could stay connected as brothers and as dad. So I text them a small portion of scripture every single day with a sentence or two of commentary. Will I teach them how to live the faith in practical ways? Will I show an interest in their lives? Will I become interested in the things they are interested in, even though those things have no interest to me at all? Say, I hate basketball. hate it. Sammy wants to watch every game on TV, every night. Will I pursue them through closed doors, through indifference, through hostile attitudes? Or will I allow the silence to grow deafening and the space between us to become greater simply because it's easier and Lord knows quieter 
Because see, the, the uncomfortable truth is this. Love almost always boils down to the expenditure of energy. But in the midst of this, a beauty is revealed. Right? What do I mean by that? Well, we didn't read this far this morning, but in verse 35 of John 13, it says this. Jesus says, by this, right, the expenditure of love, energy, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So while Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and remains there to this day, he is made manifest in this world by the love that Christians have for another. And there's a beauty that's revealed in this. A beauty that John tells us in our text all the world will see. I told this story at St. Andrews a couple weeks ago. It's a story about a hidden beauty. And it's a story about the power of love to reveal this beauty. A friend passed it along to me some years ago in a Christmas letter. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. Okay, side note. Uh, when I was at seminary, we would have to do a class called uh, Clinical Pastoral Education, right? CPE. Now, we typically referred to it as completely pointless experience. <laughs> but we had to do this. At the end of our first summer, you spend the summer in a hospital setting. Um, me and three of my best friends got turned down by every hospital in the Washington, D.C. area. So we ended up in the catch-all, both for catch-all for young aspiring clergy, but also the catch-all for the dregs of D.C., it's called St. Elizabeth Psychiatric Hospital. Right. It's on the southeast side of D.C. At the time, D.C. was the murder capital, and this was the epicenter of the murders in D.C. This is where Marion Barry, the then mayor, would sweep all the street people, all the drug addicts, and he'd just dump them in here. But then when the government regulators came to evaluate the place, they would empty those folks and just leave truly the criminally and mentally insane. So there's an element of this that I understand to be true, this story. It's not a pleasant place. Like St. Elizabeth's, this place was large, understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are simply waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. On one particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. A large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face had been eaten by cancer. I would discover later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if the new nurses could stand this sight, they could tolerate anything they would encounter in this hospital. I also learned this woman was 89 years old. She'd been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in the hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held up the flower to her face and tried to smell it. Then she spoke. Much to my surprise, her words were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. I pushed her in a chair down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients, and I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. And this is when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary woman. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Some days I would read to her from the Bible. Often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. Other days I would take a hymnal and sing with her, and she would know all the words to the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory, as she would often stop mid-hymn to comment on the lyrics. And I never heard her speak of pain or loneliness except in the stress that she placed on certain lines or certain words in the hymns. And it was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful 
to a sense of wonder. And I wondered to myself, what does Mabel think about? Day after day, week after week, year after year, not even able to tell if it's day or night. So I asked her one afternoon, I said, Mabel, what do you think about when you're lying here? And this is what this woman said who lived alone for 25 years. I think about Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty I have thinking about Jesus for five minutes. I asked Mabel, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly, and this is what she said, I think about how good he has been to me. He has been awfully good to me in my life. I'm one of those kind of folks who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd, I'd rather have Jesus. He's the whole world to me. And then Mabel began to sing a stanza from an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I would go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. Jesus is my friend. My friend concluded his letter by saying a real human being actually lived like this. Unable to move, unable to see, forgotten, probably perhaps intentionally forgotten, ignored, by almost everybody. Sometimes I wonder what homes, who they really serve. I know they do good work, and I know they treat their patients wonderfully, but I also wonder if it's us who can just put people away and not have to see it and not have to deal with it. See, from the perspective of this world, this woman, of all people, is most to be pitied. But locked away behind hospital doors and hidden away behind the disfiguring power of sickness, there was a beauty that was awaiting discovery. And it was discovered by love. And here's the point. All of us are Mabel. Everyone outside of Christ is disfigured by sin. Every one of us is unlovely. But here's what the love of Christ does. It does at least two things. It not only reveals beauty, there was a, wait, a beauty waiting to be discovered. It also creates beauty. The love of Christ actually creates a beauty that did not exist. I know a woman who for years was in a very unhappy marriage, for years. Her husband, daily, would give her a list of chores he wanted done before he got home that evening. And if she didn't get them done, there'd be hell to pay. She stayed married till he died. Several years later, she married another man who treated her very differently. And in this marriage, she began to blossom. And a new woman had appeared and emerged. And she said one day, she was cleaning the house, and she'd taken the cushions off the couch, and there fallen under the cushion was one of the old lists that her first husband had given her, the list that she could never complete. And this day, she looked at the list, and she realized, without knowing it, she had done everything and more on that list, not out of fear, but out of love. Love had transformed her. Love had revealed a hidden beauty to her. And the last thing I want you to see is there's a promise to love. Right? The immediate setting of our gospel story is important. The, the, the context of every text is important. Ken used one of my sayings about word and spirit. There's another one. A, con, a, a, context, a text without a context is a pretext. What does that mean? That means you can take any verse or any passage in the Bible and take it out of its context and make it mean almost anything you want it to mean. But when you read the text in the context, you're limited by what the author and what the Holy Spirit intended it to mean. 
So there is a context here, and the context is this. Jesus is preparing his disciples. You know, first of all, it's the marriage preparation, right? This is his bride. These are the preparation, purification rites at a spiritual level. But there's also a very practical thing taking place. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He will depart from this world to the Father. We'll read a little bit more in John. And he'll say, I'm going away, and the disciples are distressed. And he said, no, it's better if I go away. So he's preparing the disciples to be without his tangible physical presence in this world. He'll tell them that this is a good thing, though they don't understand how it could possibly be a good thing. He'll also tell them later in this chapter that their love for one another will be the reflection of his ongoing love for them. Now, the Apostle John, writing many years later in his first epistle, 1 John 4, says this, no one has ever seen God. So he's writing to a people who have not seen Christ. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. One of my great heroes of the faith is a man named Francis Schaeffer. Lived a generation ago. Founded a movement called Labrie. He called love the final apologetic. What did he mean by that? He meant that there can be no objection to the demonstration of love. You can argue people on biblical texts. You can argue theology. The final apologetic, though, the unanswerable apologetic is love. That's what they said about the early Christians, right? See how they love each other. See, love is the power behind the universe. God didn't sit in heaven and simply think, I'm going to create a universe. It's the power. Love is the power behind the universe. And from the perspective of eternity, one blind, crippled, abandoned, forgotten, seemingly insignificant old woman with this kind of love is more powerful than every power broker who has ever lived without this kind of love. When every force has played itself out and is left on the ash heap of history, one thing will remain. It's love. Mabel and all the other Mabels of this world who decide to invest everything they have in the one thing that will last, will last. Paul writes, faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest is love. This is the love that drives the servant. This is the love that drives our servanthood. Some of you here this morning, we need to be reminded that God demonstrated his love for you by acting on your behalf long before it ever occurred to you to look to him. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has poured out upon you wave after wave of his love. Have you appropriated that love for your life? Have you become disconnected from that love? See, it is God's love. This is what keeps the universe going. It cannot be stopped. It is not deterred by the sin and stain and ruin of sin. It's more powerful than the guilt and shame that you carry within and cover over. This kind of love has been marked all time by a cross. Because it's in the cross that we see God's ultimate action on our behalf. I want to suggest to you that you cannot look at that and ever ask the question, what does God think of me? The cross is God's statement of what he thinks of you. The cross is God's statement that all the power of sin and death and hell are not strong enough to overcome the love that flows to a lost, broken, angry, hostile world. It just keeps going. For others, has your love grown cold? Has your heart toward others grown disillusioned? Grown hard? Have you become a bit more jaded, ironically detached, cynical? What's the remedy? The remedy is to remember. Depending on the translation of the Bible you read, 
The word remember, not its cognates, not its derivatives, but the word itself remember appears approximately 168 times. And it's not just a remembering of something we have forgotten. Because the antonym of remember is not forget. Although we do forget. And we do need to recall. The antonym of remember is dismember. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is this. We become dismembered from Christ. Our sin, our shame, can dismember us, can separate us. You think it dismember, what do you think? I mean, severed body parts, right? Yuck. But this is what he's after. We become dismembered from Christ. And the response is not simply to recall, though that is important. It is to be remembered. It is to be, in Pauline language, grafted back in. To be remembered to the body of Christ. To be reconnected to Christ's love. To ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart by the presence of, his, of God's Word. One of the most common questions I get at St. Andrew's from folks that visit is, why do we do communion every week? I thought you were Protestant. Why do you do communion every week? Well, here's why. What's at the heart of the communion service? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for himself for us. And what are the words of institution? Take this in remembrance. Not just recalling, reconnecting. So I, um, there's, a, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings. It's in the book. It's not in the movie. Parts of it in the movie, but this part's not in the movie. It's in the book. Pippin and Gandalf are in a besieged city. The forces of Mordor are arrayed against them, right? And they know it's just a matter of time. It's, it's an, it, it is an unopposable force that is gathered outside the gates of Minas Tirith. And Pippin and Gandalf believe it to be the end. And then all of a sudden, on a far hill, there's a sound of a horn. And the riders of the Rohan appear. Now, this part is in the movie. They sweep down the hill and they obliterate the forces of Mordor. And what the book will tell us is that for the rest of his life, Pippin will remember this day. But he remembers it in a different way. Anytime he was cranky or irritable or disillusioned and he would hear a horn he would weep. And he couldn't stay that way any longer because the sound of that horn remembered him to the day of his deliverance. And this is what I tell folks at St. Andrews when we talk about why we do communion. This table is a horn in the distance. It's the sounding of our day of deliverance. It's the demonstration of God's love. Scripture tells us three remain but one never fails. Love never fails. And the invitation for you this morning is to be remembered, reconnected to this kind of love that produces Christ kind of servanthood. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for your spirit. And we pray that they, working together, would produce within us the image and character of Christ. That the affection of our heart might be set upon Christ, that he might be our desire, that we would love him again. And pray, Lord, for those dimensions of our hearts that have grown cold and jaded and cynical and critical. And ask that we would recognize those not as condemnations, but as, as a diagnosis. As the internal recognition of where Christ is not formed in our hearts. And I ask, Lord, for these women for the grace to surrender those parts of their life and their heart to you. Thank you, Lord, that your love is not conditional. That you loved us before we were lovable. 
that your love creates a genuine beauty, a true beauty. And finally, we pray, Lord, that in our love for one another, that the love of Christ might be made manifest, that the glory of Christ might be on display, and that his name might be exalted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. stay in your seat this morning if you like just to soak in his presence Forgiveness was born. 